Wittgenstein was saying everything is on the surface. You don't need to look inside. You need to look on the surface. Yeah. And this is exactly what you're going. This model is doing the surface model of the behavior. Then we build a model that behaves. We understand the model. We now we build it. We have perfect explanation, way better than the storytelling of five parameters that we love aesthetically, mm. but have no power. Only I knew that I'm going to say donkey. Right? Mm. So, as a listener, we are bound by the statistics. But as a speaker, if I'm going to talk by using the statistics, and this is how GPT is talking, become boring. Mm. This is why GPT are a bit boring to listen to and talk with. Hi, everyone. So you just heard the voice of Uri Hassan. Uri is a psychology and neuroscience professor at Princeton. And what's really nice about this episode is that Uri came all the way from Princeton to Tübingen here in Germany for a talk, which allowed me to record this podcast episode with him in person. So Uri is interested in language and wants to study it in the real world, which is also why the first third about the conversation is about Wittgenstein and a bit of evolution. In the middle, we talk about the parallels between deep learning and the brain. So Uri actually used to look down upon these deep learning models because they were just doing brute force estimation by using tons of data and tons of parameters. But now he kind of thinks that the brain is doing something similar. And as a consequence, would say that a lot of the experimental work done by language neuroscientists looking for simple symbol and rule manipulation systems in the brain is quite misguided. We also talk about what's missing in AI, uh, such as multimodal integration, including episodic memory-like structures, and the role of sociality. At the end, I ask Uri about his 1000 Days project, which is all about multimodal data. And sorry, because I had to, talking to Crows, whether, what he thinks about that, and um, the role of understanding in neuroscience, and whether we will ever be satisfied with the sort of explanations we get in neuroscience or in AI. Uh, I should also say that um, originally when I planned this episode, I wanted to talk with Uri about his idea of temporal receptive windows, and we kind of never get to that uh, for time reasons, but I thought it might be useful to me for me to briefly summarize the idea, because it links to some of the stuff we talk about at the beginning about language and evolution. So the idea of a temporal receptive window is that in the brain, different regions work at different timescales. For example, in language, when an um, auditory stimulus is coming in, it's being processed by the ear, and it's coming to the brain, then the primary auditory cortex, which might be related to the processing of phonemes or words or the acoustic aspects, uh, would work at a shorter timescale than, for example, the default mode network, which might then might then be involved in processing the narrative or con long-term contextual aspects of how is what I'm hearing fitting in into uh, what I heard three weeks ago or my own uh, sense of self. And Uri came up with the idea of temporal receptive windows by doing fMRI experiments where participants listen to language, for example, to podcasts. The idea is that the podcast is manipulated such that either one might have backward speech, so individual letters would be manipulated. One might scramble the words. One, one might scramble the order of the sentences and the paragraphs, which means that the participants in the fMRI would experience 
is distortion of the language input at different temporal scales of the input. And what they find is that different regions are affected differently by this distortion of different scales. For example, as I said earlier, the, these auditory regions, they might be more show less fMRI activity when a speech is played backwards, whereas the default mode network might show less activity when paragraph order is being scrambled, which suggests then, for example, that the default mode network might work at this uh, long temporal scale of paragraphs and how that links into, as I said earlier, our sense of self or what I heard two weeks ago. Um, I hope this is useful, uh, but now uh, enjoy the conversation with Uri. And as usual, all the um, uh, papers we talk about are in the description. Okay, hi Uri, uh, nice to have you here on the podcast. I thought at the beginning we could start with sort of the methods you use for a lot of your studies, which are the ideas of doing intersubject functional correlation in fMRI and kind of playing a speech to people and then scrambling at different timescales. And could you just walk us through why you're doing those two methods? Okay. Hi. Nice to be here. So I think what, you know, we never met, right? And like conversation that will never happen again. <laughs> and, and I really care it's like magic how I'm speaking and now transmitting my ideas to you and to this like people in the podcast. If there are any people in the podcast that will listen, okay. then it will be also them. And it's like magic. And we really care about real life. I really want to know now what's happening in my brain, what's happening in your brain. And it's too complicated. So usually what scientists will do, they will, they will go do control experiments and look on one aspect of the phenomena. And this aspect doesn't translate well to another context. And it's difficult to, to have progress. So we say, no, we're going to start from the end, from real life. But then because it's very, very complicated and we did not have any model for it, I said, maybe I can use my brain with all its complicated activity patterns to model your brain. Hmm. So what we did is we recorded people as we do now, simply speaking and listening, and we used the speaker brain, complicated pattern activity over space and time to model the complicated space or temporal activity in the listener brain. And this is called intersubject correlation. And what we found, it's really amazing that by speaking, I'm making your brain similar to mine. There is some delay, I need to think, then I start to translate it to acoustic, and I will start process, so there is some time lag. But if you account for this like temporal difference, you see that your brain patterns become similar to mine, mm. not only in acoustic areas, but also in high-order cognitive areas. And if I'm looking at the similarities, the more similar you are to my brain patterns, the better the understanding. So for example, if now you are completely confused, your brain patterns look very different than mine. Mm. If you fully get me, it starts to be very tightly coupled, the neural pattern. And if you're somewhere in between, slightly get me, slightly confused, it's somewhere in the, in the middle. Yeah, um, 
So you have been doing this intersubject control correlation for a while, and one of the more recent papers is with sort of student-teacher coupling, where the teacher is teaching something, the student is learning. I think that's a good example, and I want to choose that one because we just both declared our love to uh, the late Wittgenstein, who often likes the example of kind of a teacher and a student where you kind of have to learn a rule by examples and the understanding in language comes from the use and the sort of the language games where then let's say I think I understood the rule but then I'm corrected and it's that um, interaction that kind of develops the meaning and you're saying that um, in a way that shared meaning is uh, captured in the shared FMI activity. Yes, so Wittgenstein was saying, in a way, something against rules. Mm. He was saying, in different contexts, things look different. Mm. So if you look on the word game, for example, in his example, you use it in different ways in different contexts. So there is really no rule definition of the word. There's not like dictionary that say rule, game is blah, 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 because game is really context dependent. So how do we know how to use it? We're really sensitive to context. Meaning is very subtle, right? You change one word in a story, you can change the entire story. But because we act together, the meaning in context is decided by the community of speakers. So it becomes shared. Yeah. I did not invent language. You did. You neither. Mm-hmm. We learn it from the community. Mm-hmm. And you know, in one community, game and survival survival were connected in ancient Rome, right? But now game and survival won't go together because one is too violent to call game, right? So so the meaning is changed with, with the culture and with the context and it's all very subtle. And I think this is exactly what we see in our studies. I think we are linked together to this like common action space mm. of how to use world. And we learn it from other people. And this is why our brain becomes similar. And, and the best way to demonstrate that this coupling is happening on the meaning level and not only on the acoustic level, we translated a story from, from Russian to English. And we tried to preserve the meaning as much as possible across translation. And when we compare the Russian speaker listening to us and the English speaker listening to the translation, all the low-level sensory input was different. So the speech areas were completely not coupled. But the other areas that care about meaning was really coupled. So that's an empirical demonstration that we are also coupled on the meaning level. Yeah. Um, we will talk to the end, get more to temporary receptive windows. But I kind of want to talk a bit about the default mode network and some posterior regions in that, for example, the posterior single cortex and the preconus. And when you do this sort of um, intersubject fMRI work, you find that um, long time scales are often encoded in that region. And you were just saying um, you have to, people have a, the same action space and they have to sort of coordinate that. And I'm really interested in what does the preconus and PCC do? Because I think we don't understand it well, and I think it's interesting that rodents don't have these regions. You might say they are retrospinal cortex that is sort of related to 
uh, navigation and other centric egocentric conversion and maybe imagination are the closest home look. But I'm really interested in well, what do these regions do if it's at a long time scale? How did how did they evolve and how does that relate to this coordination of an action space? Continue with Wittgenstein mm. when you think about context. Mm. And context is everything. So now we have this like meeting of the minds, you and I. But we so this is one context, right? But the context is also which paper you read mm. before we met. Yeah. What is your education? What yeah. is your background? This is also part of the context. The same is quite for me. Which paper I read, which people influence my work. Oh, I'm thinking about work is changing over time, so it's all context. Yeah. So now you need somehow to bring everything to the conversation in order to get it. Yeah. So you need to integrate what I was saying five minutes ago yeah. with what you were reading a week ago. Yeah. And only when you do it to get the right context and understanding is happening. Yeah. So the default mode network have this like playground you can think about that you can fuse everything. It's accumulate what happened during the conversation. So we're going to talk for 30 minutes, an hour. So it's going to accumulate all these like words and connect it to the other words mm. over over time. Yeah. And then you can also bring memories from other context yeah. that are relevant and bring them together and fuse them together to get the understanding. So this is this is the place where you really do the thinking and this is why if you look on the default mode network, it, it has a very special two properties. One, it can accumulate this entire one-hour conversation, so it's a very long integration window. Yeah. And second, it's really connected to the hippocampus, yeah. and it can also retrieve long-term memories yeah. that are really necessary to get it. And to combine them together, you have understanding. So I would like to give examples to the audience, otherwise it's look too philosophical, yeah. but we really do empirical work. We took a story of Salinger, mm-hmm. and the context of the story is husband lost track of his wife in a party mm-hmm. in New York. He go back to his apartment by himself. He's a very anxious guy. So he's calling his best friend, middle of the night, where is my wife? I'm very worried, something happened, I, I don't understand. How, how come she, she disappeared in the party? And, and the best friend tried to deflect the conversation. And next to the best friend, there is a naked woman. And, and Salinger is smart. He doesn't tell the reader the identity of the woman. Mm. He calls her the girl. So, sometimes you think, oh, this naked woman, this is the wife, the best friend having an affair with a wife. And sometimes you think, no, this is the girlfriend of, of the friend, and this husband is jealous crazy. So we decided, let ruin the story and give the context. So for half of the people, we say, this is the wife having an affair. Mm-hmm. For the other side, the wife is loyal, the husband is jealous. So in a way, you, we gave you a memory before the story started. Yeah. We gave you a context. 
but that was before the story started. And then everyone listening to the same story, but bring different perceptions or point of view to the story. And what you see that the default mode become more similar between people that believe that the wife had an affair, more similar in the other group that believe that the wife is loyal and the husband is, is jealous, and different between them. So this is an example how in the default mode network, one sentence before the story starts, one memory, yeah. can really change the way you give interpretation to this complex, beautiful story. Yeah. Um, I like that example, but what I always kind of struggle with is that I think any good explanation requires sort of a, what's the evolutionary backstory, just what's like a simpler version of this kind of situation that an animal in our evolution could have faced. And um, I assume primates are closer to having a story like a situation like this than rodents are. What what do you think would be the counter example of this example for a macaque or something like that? It's really it's a really good question because language really changes the brain yeah. in a fundamental way. I don't see a monkey telling another monkey. Do you remember the banana we <laughs> ate yesterday in this place of the forest? Should we go back there? This is language, right? Mm. Primates cannot do it. Yeah. So the fact that I can give you one sentence, the wife went on film. Yeah. And it will make you more similar to all the other people that listen to this context. Is a remarkable human thing, right? Yeah. This was one sentence. Think about if some if there is a group of people that listening all day long to Fox News. Yeah. And there is another group of people that listening all day long to MSNBC. Mm. It's not like one sentence. Everything they see, they see it in a different way. And, and I think this is, and they become groups that are clustered from the other group. And I think this is, this is why you see it in this polarization and in group and out group. Combined with language will make a different brain that they don't know how to. Primate will have different memories, will have different uh, groups, so you can see to some extent in monkeys, mm. but this amplification that you got from language is really human-centered. Yeah. I agree on the language point. I mean, um, macaques or chimps don't have that, but I, I still, I, I kind of, and this we'll, we'll talk about temporary receptive windows, but I think that just the idea of, I can imagine that a macaque can think on a longer time scale than a rodent can, and that something about maybe the social relationship in the macaque colony where it's not that they said, oh, how was that banana three weeks ago, but maybe something that happened three weeks ago in the social situation influenced what the macaque did right now deciding to groom this friend opposed to this person. And then I wonder how, because they have things like pointing and some, I don't know, alarm calls, right? Like, do you think yeah, that is still separate or does that fuse? There is a communication in macaque and, and you see a lot, it, you always want the evolution to be continuous mm. and then also to give yeah. you shift right? yeah. uh, or steps. Punctuated equilibrium yeah. and stuff. 
So, for example, if you look on baboons, yeah. they know the hierarchy yeah. of every member of the group. Yeah. And they know that, and they are tracking it because it's dynamic hierarchy. If someone got old and beaten by a young one, yeah. they will remember that he was uh, demoted in the hierarchy and the young one now going yeah. up. So, so they're all constantly monitoring monkey business, right? They're monitoring and remembering, yeah. and it's a very dynamic system. And then they have the communication and they're listening. Yeah. You know, even if you play the recording of the fight, they will listen. Yeah. So it's not only visual, it's also yeah. auditory. So there are many, many similarities. Yeah. And yet, once you add language, suddenly you get this like powerful hmm. emerging properties that you did not expect to get, but it's really changing the way. Yeah. Um, let's go away from Akars and talk about transformers and deep learning. So recently, You've, um, as I understand from the conversation you had with Paul Middlebrooks on um, Brain Inspired, you used to kind of look down on these models and now you are using them a lot and seeing more and more parallels. But is it too simplistic to say that, well, maybe you want to first introduce some kind of background building blocks? We work in real life and because we did not have a model, we used one brain. Model another way. And why did they not have a model? It's because most of the models in psychology and neuroscience were a simple model that can model lab experiment but cannot go to real life. Hmm. So you cannot use them to model real life behaviors, and this because this is what we care about, we use this trick of using one brain to model another way. And suddenly a meeting friends from from Google and tell me and that was a while ago. Oh do you know that now we have models that recognize faces as good as humans. Mm. And as a background I should mention that I did my PhD on face perception. Mm. So I went to series of stages of grief. <laughs> At the beginning I was really mad and offended. What do you mean you have a model that processes faces as good or even better than humans? We, as a field, the collective we, work on face perception for many, many years, do so many experiments. Why didn't we come with a model? Mm. And, and you in Google managed to have a model that worked with faces. After this stage, of pride and, and getting a bit <laughs> insulted, I become curious. Wait, so now you have a model that can do as well in face recognition as humans? How does it work? So I went and did a sabbatical in Google to talk with the people that developed the models and asked them, okay, so which part of, my, of our theories were correct? And they say, we don't know. We never taught them that faces have eyes or features. We simply gave them examples and they learn. And when we look at these models, they have millions of parameters. It's not a simple 20 features and few computation model that we develop. Mm. And I think this is why also our model did not work because they were too simple. 
No, it's a few million parameters model. It, it's, it's a complicated model that learn without specifying the features. So then the third step say, oh, did we duplicate the problem? Now we have a brain that we don't understand. And now we have a Google brain that we don't understand. So we started to look into these models. And actually, now I think that they are very simple models. I don't think they are complicated anymore. And I think these models are related to evolution. I can explain how they are related to evolution mm-hmm. in a second. And therefore, they are biologically relevant. Mm-hmm. And now that I think that they might be a cognitive model, I don't need to use my brain to model your brain because now I have this like model that can help me to model your brain in my brain in the real life. Mm-hmm. So now, when we have a model, we can do things that we could not do few years ago when we only relied on the intersubject correlation. So it's a real shift in the way we are thinking. Yeah. Uh, this goes to your direct fit paper, which is uh, a really good paper. It'll be in the description for everyone to read. And um, so I, I assume a problem, as you kind of say in the paper, is that we teach um, this idea of good models being underpermeized, having an ideal fit, And maybe you want to talk us through that and how actually the idea of a direct fit um, can be very powerful, assuming there's enough data. Yeah, so there are different ways to explain it. But let's start with, we have a desire for simplicity. And it's an aesthetic desire. But it's not well formulated. If I'm telling you, I have... Two theories for evolution. One that have seven parameters, and one that have 300 trillion parameters. Which one is more simple? Seven. But now you will see that this counting the parameters is not the right way to decide which model is more parsimonious. Because the seven parameters theory is God created life in seven days. Mm, right. Yeah. And the triangle trillion parameter is this like iteration that we started with two cells and split them over time with a simple objective and blind optimization and got all the variety of solution without even understanding the problem. Yeah. So in a way, Darwin theory is more parsimonious because he lay out few principles that once you get them, can give you a powerful solution without understanding the problem. Mm. The, the seven days solution, you need God that understand everything to create it, right? So this is why it's not parsimonious, right? Because God needs to think about all the interaction, because mm. all the dimension in nature that it's really impossible to compute. And evolution do not, because it's a fitting mechanism. Mm. So now, I think everyone will agree that Darwin theory is more parsimonious, although it has like trillions of parameters or, or iteration or steps, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's the same about deep learning relative to psychological theories. When we try to design the features and the computation, mm-hmm. 
it requires us to think about all the nonlinear interaction that uh, because all the dimension in life and we cannot do it but deep learning is a way to learn to blind optimization with few simple principles to fit to the solution without understanding the power and when you start to think about deep learning in this perspective first to become biological element right oh of course biology is part of evolution so if this is if there are similar principles this is what the brain will choose it's also killing God in the brain because we say okay everything is blind optimization but we did not kill God in our brain you say but we are smart we understand the brain is smart the brain understands the principles and and then act but now you can see that this like deep learning can act as good as humans with this like blind optimization like evolution mm-hmm. so it's also killing God in the second round but I really think that it points us to a new family of computational models for how the brain is working and if it's true it's really scientific revolution and now we can get to your transformers point because although I think the deep learning is relevant for biological neural network not only to artificial the implementation is very different transformers it's not biologically feasible and transformers you get all the input at once mm. and you multiply the matrices you cannot listen to this in one hour recording at once you need to go second by second and integrate the information mm. so the implementation in the brain is very different than the implementation in neural networks so although it's similar principles the way it's really manifest itself in the biological neural network is very different so it's similar on the principles but really not similar in the implementation the implementation implementation is very different yeah um, that makes me think I'll just ask this and then maybe we can link that to how um, to the implementation level so part of the idea with The difference between overfitting and direct fit is that you have some regularization so that you don't have these explosive overfits. So just imagine you have lots of data points and you have parabola. Then if you try to fit all the points, you will totally overshoot. And figure one in the paper shows that very nicely. But if you kind of regularize, then you avoid that overfitting. And that seems related to how the brain does its implementation. And Could you just talk us through how the brain does, or evolution does, regularization? And um, I already talked with Tony Zeller about genomic bottlenecks, so let's not use that example. Okay. It's really interesting that the more parameters you have, it's more difficult to overfit. Hmm. So this exclusive fit will happen when you have a few parameters. Hmm. And people see it, there is something that we really don't fully understand in, in the mathematics of deep neural networks, that it seems that the more multidimensional your, your stimulus space, 
and the more multidimensional your presentation, because you have more nuance and weight, you have more degree of freedom, right? We talk about millions of parameters, we have a lot of degree of freedom, you can fit to any structures yeah. within non-linear. Optimization, you can take any shape that you like across the layers. And this seems that the world of overfitting is not as worry. In a way, what we are saying is that overfitting is the solution. Right. As long as you really fit to the structures of the data and you're not, the problem is like explosive fit is that you hallucinate, right? Basically, you don't have a tight fit to the yeah. curve, right? Yeah. Because we have sparse sampling of the curve. Yeah. If you have many parameters, you're really sampling right. the curve, and then you will really do very good interpolation. Yeah. So we were always thinking that overfitting won't work because we cannot go to a new example. So it's only memorization. Mm. But if you have strong way to regularize and fit, then you would really take the structures of the data and then if you have new points that are sampled within the distribution, mm. you can really extrapolate, sorry, interpolate to infinite new examples, although you learn nothing about the underlying function. And I think this is the, the trick of deep learning. Deep learning moved from extrapolation. So extrapolation is only for the audience. Extrapolation is when you study in one distribution and then you go to a completely new place and because you understood the world, you know it's going to work. The best example for extrapolation is Newton law. Mm, yeah. You learn about uh, how masses move on Earth and you go to the moon, which have completely different mass and, and gravitation, but you can calculate the trajectory of object. Although you've never been on the moon, because you know the math and you understand it, you can go to the moon. Deep learning, not working like this. Deep learning, if you study in the desert, you won't know how it's working in the forest. If you study underwater, you don't know how it's working on the moon. You really need to sample the distribution, and then you can interpolate within your environment, but you are really bad outside because you never learn rules. Mm. And this is going back again to Wittgenstein, everything is context. Mm. The context of the forest mm. is not the context of deep water. It's not the context of the desert. If you want to know all three environments, mm. you have to sample a lot of examples from all three environments, and then you will know. Because yeah. you can generate the context as long as you learn that context. But what it seems like to me is that in evolution, definitely human evolution, but lots of other animals that are able to solve lots of complex problems that um, somehow the environment they're sampling is very diverse. And that to me seems to do a lot to do with sort of intuitive physics in the sense that they are repeating patterns in the world. And for example, I'm really interested in navigation and grid cells because in my mind, it, the moment you can navigate in a physical space very well, then you can maybe navigate in an abstract space because you can reuse that. And in a way, you're not extrapolating that much when in evolution you suddenly have language or concepts 
because you can use the same grid cells and then it seems to me that that allows very diverse sampling a bit by because direct fit is all about is about system one right but if you i feel like one can sample even more densely by having the architecture already in place because then the sampling is bound on different cell types so i, I can and then yeah i mean what do you think about that yeah so i think first be like first the current version of of artificial neural networks are really bad in generalization. Like if you yeah. learn one one game of Atari, yeah. it will be difficult to learn another game. Yeah. And humans are really good at it. So we need to improve the models. Another thing is we don't need to be born with random weights, right? Yeah. We have evolution that fine-tune our brains to be biased to particular statistics. So we can get more efficient learn, learning by taking evolution into account. Thirdly, we have languages, and, and what you see now with they start to give this agent language models, and then they can extrapolate better because language capture high level statistics. So, you know, there are many tricks, but that's the point. Evolution is, is bands of tricks that you combine together and you get emerging properties. And, and I think without ever understanding fully the it's all statistical solutions, but when you combine them, you get something very, very powerful. And I think the best way to think about it is language. Linguists were arguing for centuries that each conversation is new. This conversation never happened before. It's completely novel. And because we have these like generative rules, again, going back to the rule, base, you can combine and have infinite combinatorical way to combine language in new ways. Mm-hmm. Then language models came, like a chat GPT or GPT-4, and say, no, go back to Wittgenstein. It's all learning in context. Our conversation is similar Sadly, because we want to be unique, and this is a unique conversation. So on one hand, if you will take the word and you do search, you will never find it. Yes, because it's a unique word. Maybe you want like few sentences that are similar, but not this chain of words, right? Yeah. But on the level of statistics, in this context, talking about AI and the brain and, and biological neural networks and, and artificial neural networks, it's part of a bigger conversation that has some statistics. In this context, if you ask ChatGPT to talk instead of me, mm. it will be not bad. Mm. Still not as good as humans, because it's going to drift or sound more like something that already heard and not novel enough. But starting together only with learning the statistics in context. So. So in a way, what we are learning from it is that learning in context is enough to learn everything about syntax, everything about semantic, everything about pragmatic, everything about like speech even, mm. sound, speech sound, into one model. And we are not as unique. We are more statistical in context, and this context repeats itself, and it's not as novel as, as it was argued before. Yeah. 
Um, what ChatGPT would be really bad at is writing longer text, like a novel, because it's in the context windows like 5,000 words or something like that. And then um, doing those long-term dependencies of the statistics is hard. And we were talking about the default mode network, which is exactly doing that. So um, is the DM uh, default mode network doing direct fits or is it closer to system one or what is that doing? So, you know, the different models coming now, uh, deep language models, in which you add them an episodic memory. Hmm. So what is it? As we were saying before, the context is not only this like 5,000 word in this conversation, it's also what you read before and what you talked before. Right? And, and other conversations you have with other people in the podcast in different episodes. It's all connected. Yeah. If you let your, your deep language models save this conversation and you can retrieve them, so you say you have an episode with Paul, let's say, uh, or either, that is connected, now you can retrieve this episode as an embedding mm-hmm. and integrate it. Now you have an episodic memory and that will make these models more like the DMN because they can, they can integrate this working memory with this like long-term memories and it's easy to combine it in the model. So mm-hmm. I think this is something that is happening now. And it's also because different agents will have different memories they will have different output, so it start. It can really model individual differences as well in an interesting way. If you only read law books or medical books mm. or or history books, you have different way of speaking because your background knowledge is different, and mm. you see that this agent start talking a different way mm. based on their expertise. Yeah. So you can add it to your model and make it more cognitive model. Let me take you even one step further to the future. If we really believe that this is a cognitive model, then we need to respect cognition. And Google and Meta and OpenAI, they don't care about cognition. They care about the application. For example, GPT is trained on the entire internet. We did a calculation. seems to us that it will take 6,000 years without sleeping or eating to read the entire internet. Baby doesn't read anything. And he learned language from few people in the house over three years. And kids become, let's say, really independent like GPT when they are 24. Don't be offended if you are not 24. <laughs> yes, you know. And you will get smarter and smarter as you go until you will start to decline like me. So it's take time. It's a lot of statistics, but it's a very different statistics. So if we want to model how human work, we should not use all the internet. We use the input of the baby mm-hmm. and the body of a baby and the curricular learning of a baby that you start in steps and you have developmental states and your objective is changing course and then you have a body and you have a person that is smiling to you mm-hmm. and give you food and you have this like social interaction and it's, it's all multimodal so it's embodied, it's multimodal and all these things you can plug to your model and make it more human-centered or species-centered, different species have different input mm-hmm. and different environment and different brains, right? So you can 
If you really want to make it a cognitive model, you cannot stay with this models that come from industry trained on the entire internet. That won't cut so cognition. So it's up to us to make this model more realistic. Um, sorry, at this point of the conversation, there was a problem where my SD card was full and I didn't notice uh, for five to eight minutes or so. So I lost sadly part of the conversation. I basically asked Uri to, when comparing these deep learning models with the brain, what's missing? And he said that obviously multimodal integration is very important, but also the idea of integrating something like episodic memory. And he also made this point about sociality. And the next question is a follow-up on that. Um, you were talking about sociality. Um, do you think it's necessary that two agents that have access to a multimodal data set, um, that they don't have complete information of each other, so that you have this Wittgensteinian moment of needing to infer, when you say game, do I understand what you mean with it? And that you, in a way, get culture and interaction by having incompletes and sort of inference, or do you think is, is, is that an important part of modeling the systems, or is it fine if they all get the same data sets? It's really important, and it's something that is lacking mm. in the current model. So, you know the statistics of language, and I know the statistics of language. So, in a way, if I'm going to talk based on the statistics of language, Let's say when I'm saying, look, oh, look, there are clouds going to rain. And that is statistics, right? We all know the statistics, then there is no point of listening because you don't get new information. You get new information only when you are surprised. When you are surprised, this is the moment for learning. This is the moment that you change the weight of the model. So the model listens, and when they are surprised, they are learning and they are changing the weight. So listeners are bound by the statistics. You can only predict based on the statistics of language. If I'm now going to... And remember, I'm the boss of the conversation. I can say something you did not predict. I'm going to say donkey. Donkey is out of context. You could not predict. Only I knew that I'm going to say donkey. Right? So as a listener, you are bound by the statistics. But as a speaker, if I'm going to talk by using the statistics, and this is how GPT is talking, become boring. Mm. This is why GPT are a bit boring to listen to and talk mm. with. Unless you are not familiar with the context, and then they become interesting. But if you are an expert, don't talk with GPT, it will be very boring. Mm. What we see in the human brain is that the speaker tried to break the statistics. So I'm talking against the distribution. I'm trying to surprise you because this is where I'm giving you information. And we see this in the brain as an extra step that we don't see in language models. So, so there are also differences and misses component in language models. Similar to the episodic memory, this is another difference that we need basically to add. <laughs> Yes, someone's whistling. Um, well, we don't have much time. We're grabbing dinner soon. But um, let me ask you about your Thousand Days project. Tell me a bit about that. You were mentioning the importance of multimodal data. Um, and then, if you want to, but we don't have to talk about this. 
I'm really interested in the idea of talking to crows in 50 years. And there are some of these ideas about talking to animals rely the idea of sort of multimodal data sets of animals. So you get data and position tracking, visual data, maybe neural data, freely moving. I said 50 years because none of that is close. But um, do you tell me about the Thousand Days project? And if one did something similar with animals, do you think we could, because it's all about this sort of interaction between two agents, um, could we figure out what they're talking about by kind of getting the grounding of all the environment, neural activity, what does it mean for the animal when they say caca and assuming that for some animals it's not just um, emotive or always towards a predator, but there's some um, flexibility in the communication. Yes and yes and yes. So the 1000 day project is a crazy project that we're currently doing in the lab. It was inspired by, by the boy that recorded his family 12 years ago, 15 years ago, with cameras from the moment the child arrived to the house for one or two years. That was before the planning, so the data is, is, is private and we don't have access to it. And it was difficult to penetrate with human annotators. So in a way now we do it at scale. We sampling 15 babies from the moment they are born. We wire the houses with cameras and microphones and we capture their behavior. Another idea is can we develop language models? that learn to speak and talk like a baby from the baby perspective and not from reading the internet, right? That again, we make it more cognitively feasible. And, and this, is, this is the aspiration and this is what currently we are trying to do. I'll tell you in a year or two whether we succeed or fail. We're already collecting the data, but the modeling part is currently starting. But you can also do it with animals. I mean, it's way easier to record the entire life of an animal mm. or the entire community. You don't need uh, one species. You can wire, let's say, rats or crow. It might be a bit more difficult to, to collect the entire data, but maybe you can do it if they're living in, in, in a confined space. Mm. And then you can have models that predict the behavior of your species from the input of the species. So if a sound go with a particular behavior in a particular context, mm-hmm. there is no better models than it's like a large language model. So you can really learn the language of animals with exactly the same way that you learn the language of humans. So yes, you can do it. There's this Wittgenstein uh, quote, um, if a lion could speak, we wouldn't understand it. Um, and it's, I think it's a kind of a bot ecology, uh, in the sense that even if we figure out in a way the statistics of the signal, we have to figure out what the, the statistics mean within the environmental context and the interaction. And yeah, this is why you, it has to be a multimodal. Yes. So your model has to see this, uh, the context, and you know, it can be more than only see, it can mm-hmm. also smell and infrared, you can get many different contexts when you're wiring the environment. Mm. And if it's really repeating, in this particular context, you have a particular behavior, the model will predict it fully. Mm. 
Uh, it doesn't mean that you will get it. It mm. means if if the lion is doing something in this context always with this sound, then the more we do the same thing with the context. But if the context is clear, now it's going to arm, now it's going to eat, now it's going to mate, then you will understand it. If if not, maybe not. But Wittgenstein was saying everything is on the surface. You don't need to look inside. You need to look on the surface. Yeah. And this is exactly what you got, this model is doing. They are surface model of the behavior. Hmm. And they will capture the surface. Do you think we'll ever be satisfied? Or will it be the sort of situation we have now with these black slash transparent boxes in deep learning where, well, we thought we could understand, but will we ever have the sense that that's enough for an explanation? I think the answer is going to be different for different people, and there's also an aesthetic uh, aspect to this question. When do you stop, and mm. when it's enough, and you know, this, this is enough for me, but it's not enough for you. For me, personally, if you're going to model the behavior of human, and I can really predict your behavior now, because I know everything about you, It's not like we only met, I really have a good model of you. But know exactly what you read through your entire life and all the context and all the multimodal and the body. And so if I have these models that behave like humans, and then the inside is more similar because we, it's not transformed, it's now biologically feasible also from the inside, mm. then for me we're done. Mm. But you're losing this like uh, illusion of simple interpretable models that we like as in Newton law. We have like a few parameters, linear equation. Yeah. That won't be the explanation you will get at the end. So if you still prefer classical physics, you will be really disappointed. Mm. If you care about human behavior and how humans are doing it, maybe this is how humans are doing it. So it's an excellent place to stop and say, oh, we did it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure whether, I don't know, I feel like I would more, but I'm not sure whether that's realistic. I think there's this illusion of like wanting to understand it and then it feeling like this, oh, I, the light bulb moment. Yes, now I figured it out. And I, I guess that might never happen. But there's a light bulb in evolution theory. Once you right. get Darwin, yeah. You stop asking who designed the eye yeah. and how does the eye understand optics. Yeah. It's not the right question yeah. anymore. Mm. But you have principles that help you understand nature in a yeah. deep way. So I think this is the same over it. You have this insight, you have these principles, you understand how complexity emerges from these principles and how the solutions are happening. Mm. It's a beautiful explanation, but it's a, a different aesthetics. So I think that people that want design intervention are very disappointed by evolution. Doesn't, ah, really? Yeah. No one designed the eye, it's not a perfect device to see without understanding optics. Yeah. Cannot be. So in a way, if, I think most people, if you say God exists, We'll get this relief that you want of this like mm. simple explanation mm. that uh, 
רשונליים, אינטרטבל, גיידד, דיסל בליינד אופטימיזיישן, we don't like it. But on the other hand, if you come from the perspective, what I cannot build, I cannot understand, as the physics framer was saying, then we build a model that we have, we understand the model, we know we build it, we have perfect explanation, way better than the storytelling of five parameters that we love aesthetically, but have no power. So for me it would be enough, but I always understand and sympathetic for the people who say, no, I want this purity of reasoning. Yeah, well, I look forward to when you have finished building it. Probably going to fail, but as a group, as a field over 50 years, I think we can make it. Thank you very much, Ovid. This is really interesting. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to find out when new episodes are coming out, follow me on Twitter. I'd also really appreciate it if you could rate or review this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast. And if you have any feedback, drop me an email at axeli.ilmanen at gmail.com. Until next time.